This is episode 57 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm talking with Piper Clem. Dr. Piper Clem is the owner and publisher of The Plaid Horse. Her mission is to educate young equestrians in every facet of our industry and to empower young women in particular to find their voices in stories and to share them. She has spent her entire career focusing on education through various channels, including The Plaidcast, North America's Most Listened to Horse Show Podcast, as a professor at St. Lawrence University, co-authoring the Show Strides book series, and providing educational articles, grants, and experiential learning opportunities for riders of all ages and levels. She earned her PhD in chemistry at the University of California, Berkeley. Piper lives in Canton, New York with her husband, Adam Hill. Adam is a chemistry professor at St. Lawrence University and is the faculty mentor to the national champion IHSA riding team. Piper owns a fleet of lease ponies and competes in the amateur hunter divisions with MTM Sandwich. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi everyone, welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm so excited to have Piper Clem on the show with me today. Hi Piper, welcome. Hi Carly, thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you. You are an, an entrepreneur extraordinaire, and this is going to be a really inspirational interview. I cannot wait to dive deeper into what you're up to, but I always like to start these interviews off with asking, how did your love affair with horses begin, Piper? So I have the same story as a ton of people. I com- come from a completely non-horsey background. My parents didn't understand what they were saying yes to, <laughs> but they love to tell this story that I went to a birthday party when I was about three, and there were pony rides at the birthday. You know, the first ride, 30 kids lined up, and the second ride, 15 kids lined up, and the third ride, three kids lined up, and, oh, Piper, they're opening presents, and she's on the pony, and, oh, Piper, it's time to eat cake, and she's still on the pony. Oh, Piper, the pony needs to go home. (laughs) And um, after that, I just badgered my parents, and they opened the phone book back in the day in the yellow pages and found me a barn, and I started riding, and so I think it's, you know, it's, it's one of those stories that's that's so common that, you know, my parents didn't know where to start. They had no idea what they were looking for. They had no idea what they didn't know. And I think that that's really inspired a lot of what I've done. Absolutely. I mean, horses have threaded through your entire life and it's the same for all of us. We're born with it. A lot of us are born with it. And our parents are like, I, where did this come from? I hope it's a phase. The same thing happened in my life. You know, there was this obsession that my parents just could not understand. So I feel you. (laughs) Uh, And you currently have horses in your life. Can you talk to us a little bit about your horses and, and what you do? Because it's pretty fascinating to me. You, you have lease ponies in your yep. barn. So talk to yep. us a little bit about your, your horse life. So when I was uh, growing up, because my parents didn't know anything, when I was uh, 12, I got an unbroke two-year-old because that's what non-horse parents buy for their 12-year-olds. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and it was a two-year-old pony. And what I was really lucky with is that my parents let me make all the decisions. They always let me decide 
who I wanted to ride with, what horse shows I wanted to do. They never really dictated that. And I see so many parents today that it's so rigid and they, Mm -hmm. you know, they dictate so much of this. And um, my parents just let me off and do my thing. And it was always, this was a business. I had to present them a PowerPoint on what the pony costs and what the expenses were. And I had to keep my notebook of all, every blanket she ripped that we had to buy a new one and every lesson and every shoe. And, you know, I groomed and braided and worked for other people and was a working student to like work off whatever I could. But I, you know, I had to keep track of everything and I had that kind of respect for what went into it. And we had no idea how it would turn out, but as things grew, you know, my parents let me do make all the decisions. And so when I outgrew her and she was getting to be a pretty good pony, you know, my parents let me like call people and like decide what I wanted to do. I just, no one was really leasing back then. And I decided that I wanted to lease her because from talking to people, I found out the ponies lease for about a third of their value a year. And I was like, okay, so if I do this for longer than three years, I come out ahead, but I leased her out. And so I was off to the races and um, I made every mistake in the book. I learned so much stuff the hard way, like did everything wrong, but, you know, somehow came out with the pony and with some lease money and slowly we built every year and made better decisions and moved with better, better people. And so when I was 19, I bought my parents out of every dollar they had put into my riding. And that included like mileage to the barn and every lesson and every blanket and every everything. And And my parents said that any money after that was mine. So she kept leasing out in college and there were ups and downs and, and I still own her to this day. She's, she, we've retired her three separate times. She does not want to be retired. <laughs> she has a rebellion <laughs> in retirement. So she is 22 now. She is more sound than ever. She's with a family right now that their barn burned down. And so she's just on loan so that um, she's teaching the kids to ride again after they had a bad time. And it's been one of the most fulfilling things, learning how to raise a young one learning how to manage a middle-aged one, learning how to deal with like injuries and stuff later in her career, how many different aspects of how this, how different aspects of this career were, um, this sport works and how people handle things financially. A few years ago, I was saying to someone, they were like, oh, like, that's so mean. That's so mean. Your parents did that to you. Cause I, I like literally I had the notebook of like, Oh, every, like every day to the barn, how many miles, how many, everything. And I was like, uh, you know, I was like, and I never thought of it as mean, obviously it just seemed like business. And but the next time I was talking to my mom, I was like, oh, I was talking to so-and-so. And they were like, that's so mean. That's so mean. Your mom did that to you. And my mom just like, doesn't miss to be. She goes, what? It's not like I charge you interest. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, you know what? They did you a huge service. They mm-hmm. set you up to be a businesswoman, to understand that money doesn't grow on trees, particularly around horses. And yep. you took it and you ran with it and you evolved it into something that worked for you where you could still keep this pony in your life, but she was earning you money. And it was the yep. foundation I would imagine for where you are in your life today. Uh, Absolutely. And you have a, don't you have a whole barn of lease ponies going on now? So, so you, you're in the business of leasing ponies because of this one experience with your childhood pony. So yep. talk about that, the business of leasing ponies, like you expanded upon that. Yep. <laughs> so when I was in graduate school, so I kind of burned out of the horse industry. I got to be a working student with um, top barns. I got to see it all, but it also meant like I was really young and got to see a lot of wealth and a lot of stuff that I didn't have. And I, I got jealous. I wasn't mature enough to handle it. I wasn't grateful for what I did have. And I kind of just kind of imploded inside. I, you know, I was 16, 17 years old. And like, there are these kids that had so much and I just couldn't, I couldn't come to terms with it emotionally. And so I decided to 
focus on other things. So I went to school. I really focused on school. I didn't ride in college at all. Um, I went to grad school and got my PhD in chemistry. And and all of my horse skills served me so well in school. You know, everyone would be like, oh my God, like I'm dying. And I'd be like, try grooming OF. <laughs> <laughs> so, but towards the end of grad school, I just, I missed it so much. I missed the ponies and like, you know, by then I'm feeling like a complete genius. I'm like, okay, I got this pony. I figured it out. Like, I can do it again, right? And you never realize how special the first pony is or, you know, what you took for granted. So I was, I went out to buy one more pony and then I bought like three more ponies and then I went out to do it again. And I, again, made every mistake in the book, you know, hung on by a thread, but slowly figured it out, optimized. And then um, I met my current business partner, Emily Yellick, through one of the three that I purchased. We just hit it off. Like she's my person. I just agree with how she does things. I agree with how she approaches things. She's a great horse person. She always puts a horse first and putting the horse first is always good business long-term. You know, it doesn't always seem like the right call because, you know, you can cut corners, but the long road is a short road and she's extremely disciplined on that stuff. And, and I get in a hurry to get there sometimes. So it's so great to have her being like, nope, like this is, this is the pathway. This is the long road is the short road. And she always makes the long-term decisions. And we, we've just worked really well together. So we've been together for eight years, I think now. Yeah. Moving the ponies to her. She's in the Midwest. She's in Wisconsin. So she can do things very cost-effectively. She has uh, the Ledges horse show circuit near her. So we can get stuff qualified for pony finals. And she just has all the same values that I do of she really wants to give opportunity to people in the sport. She wants to teach young people how to train young animals. And it's not just, she goes to shows all year long with no grooms and the kids do everything and she teaches them how it's done. And there's, you know, there's no setup unless they make the setup. You know, they do the stalls, they unbraid, they're bathing. You know, it's something you don't see in the sport anymore. She's got tons of working students everywhere that she is teaching to have functional careers in the sport. And it's all tied into doing good business and doing right by the ponies. And, and I just feel so lucky to have met her and to have glommed onto that. So I own like 17 ponies now. It's kind of a lot and, you know, just kind of gradually grown. But the thing is, is like, it's in a lot of ways, it's less stressful to have a whole bunch because when you have one or two, it's like, if they don't lease that year, or they're three months in between their leases or six months or there's an injury. I mean, it is your bottom line is like a hundred percent or nothing, you know, and and you're just kind of like, oh my God, when is it going to lease? And there's so much anxiety with that. And, you know, I would say that the sweet spot is kind of like six or more. And I sold a couple. Um, it's never been my goal to sell them. I always want to just lease them. But sometimes people fall in love with them. And I mm. respect that too. Because I, I want to own them their whole careers and, and know that they always have a soft place to land. But if a family's like truly obsessed with them, <laughs> they feel the same way I do. Like, I'm not opposed to that. And I think like having six or more ponies is actually a much less stressful place to be in because you, you started, it's like any business, you started to systematize things, you have your values. And um, Emily's the largest dealer of ponies in North America. People come to her and buy or lease year after year after year. And that's because she does such good business and such honest business. But when you look at it from a business perspective, when you're selling or leasing over a hundred ponies a year, like if I buy a small pony, I don't need to buy a small pony bridle. Like she's got a small pony, you know, everything is set up in the barn. Everything is systematized. Everything is ready. She owns every bit in pony size that you can possibly ever imagine. And so you think of the startup costs of an operation like this, and they're just completely prohibitive, but having grown into it and grown in the way 
that we do and, and using, you know, supplies like that. And, you know, she grows her own hay on her farm and um, fertilizes with the manure. Like it's everything is thought out. Everything is systematized. And she's not only a like horse genius and speaks horse better than anyone, but she is a business like she's thought about every step of the supply chain and the pipeline. Wow. That is Amazing. You know, when I was galloping around your website, uh, picking out, you know, t- taking a look and seeing what I wanted to build the interview questions around, I landed on your uh, Lease Ponies page and you have some beautiful, be- I mean, these are beautiful ponies. These are not backyard ponies. These are like competitive, beautiful ponies. And what I, you said a few things there, there that I want to unpack a little. One is that you experienced some burnout. And I think that is, perfectly normal and okay. And to take a break is always a healthy thing. So good on you for doing that. But what's always there with equestrians is the love. You always end up missing it and coming back to it. So taking a breather, usually around college is is not a bad thing. I think we all do that in our young adulthood, trying to figure out who we want to be in the world. But you came back to it and you turned your passion into this really beautiful business where you're doing what you love but you're doing it in a way that is teaching young people to be responsible, teaching them horsemanship, the whole package. And I think that that's the beauty of horse ownership or leasing a pony from you is that it teaches responsibility. It teaches compassion. It teaches putting the animal before anything else. And I think that's what makes a solid young person. So what your business model is like making a contribution to humanity at the same time as it's, helping young people pursue their passion of riding these ponies. So that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that really cool story with us because I, I was I was really interested to learn more. And then, you know, I wanted to shift a little. We're going to dive a little bit back into some of your on, other entrepreneurial things that you're working on. Well, this is also entrepreneurial. You're, you've written a book series, you know, so tell us about uh, your show strides book series. So there's a theme in my life that everything is like, so in some stage of not working until I meet the right person. (laughs) Um, And so my pony business was in a few stages of not working before I met the right person. Mm -hmm. And um, show strides is the exact same way. I love reading everything. I mean, things just like everything when I was little came alive to me, Saddle Club, Thoroughbred series, like Heartland, like all of those, just Pony Pal, like anything that had Pony that was in the library, I checked out. I really felt like they needed an update. I'm obsessed with horse shows. I love horse showing. I love the hunters. I appreciate the jumpers and the equitation, but like I personally, like the hunters is like, I'm not a perfectionist really at anything else in my life. And this is the one thing that like I kind of claw in on. And, you know, none of those books really ever kind of talked about more the horse show side of stuff specifically. And the other thing is I really wanted to update with characters that were better. And I don't mean this in any dig on anyone, but times were just so different back then. And, you know, in in the Saddle Club books, it was perfectly normalized to vilify the rich girl. And like, that's not... To, they bullied her like let's you know, in hindsight you know before mm-hmm. they thought that she bullied them but if you really read the books it was three on one <laughs> um, you know and they they were probably bullying her for being rich and they were jealous we don't need someone to be a common enemy like horseback riding is so hard horses are so hard it is so much work we don't need any more challenges <laughs> so I really wanted to take that like us versus them you know out of 
the discussion because I feel like in today's world, we are better. We are nicer to each other. My values are everyone should be included all the time and everyone should be nice to each other. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't give our opinion on something unless someone asks for it. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone asks me what I think of something, I will tell them. But I really make an effort to like not like walk up to someone and be like, oh my God, your pony does not have the step. Like I would never do that. And I feel like that's a change in culture. And I think it's a good change in culture because the people whose expertise you believe in, you will ask for their opinion. And the people whose expertise you don't believe in, you won't. And if someone doesn't believe in your expertise, we shouldn't be asking for their opinion Mm -hmm. or they shouldn't be giving their opinion unsolicited. So I really wanted to kind of move on those values and make something that's contemporary and and updated, but at the same time, the classic story that I loved so much as a kid and that brought things to life so much as a kid. And I just want to keep people reading all the time. I think you can learn so much about riding by reading, by being intellectual, by being smart. And, you know, a lot of, you know, there've been a lot of reasons that we have not embraced classical schooling as a sport. And this kind of relates to my college class too, that we'll talk about later, but like, I really want to embrace classic education because classic education works. Is -hmm. it perfect for everyone? No, you know, but at some level it works. And so to not embrace that as a sport, I think it's just such a, such a missed opportunity for everyone. So those, that was kind of my, where I wanted to get started. So the two main characters of the first two books, Tally and Mac, um, Tally has uh, a little more talent and a little less clue and a little less money and mac has a little more money and a lot more clue and a little less talent and they work together and they both have their challenges from where they are and they both love horses they both want it and they both work together and then they meet some other characters along the way they meet some fun ponies they get into tough situations and it's about kind of growing up and and being part of this and and I want everyone to feel welcome I want everyone to feel like they're part of the sport and that's morally what I believe in but also if that's not morally what you believe in it's also good business because every new person that joins the sport spends they buy helmets they buy britches they buy jackets they buy ponies like if even if you don't morally think that everyone should be included all the time which is one of my values you should look at your pocketbook and think that everyone should be included all the time. I totally agree. I mean, this is a sport for everyone. It teaches life lessons. uh, It helps you grow. It teaches you empathy, compassion, you know, all the things this world needs more of totally. And you're writing a book that really speaks to that and, or a book series. I'm sorry. So there's three books in the series so far. How many more do you think you might take it to? I would love to go on forever. I mean, I think, and that's where like Saddle Club to me, I think they have like something like 140 Mm -hmm. or something. I mean, that would be the dream. We kind of got three out very quickly. I'm working on a lot of my other projects right now. So we're not actively writing the next couple, but I'm hoping that we get started at the beginning of 2021 writing four and five at least. And, and I would love for this to, you know, be sustainable and go on for as long as it can. Cause I just, I believe in this project and I love the characters and it's so much fun. That's so exciting. And you co-author these books with another author. Is that right? How does that process work? Do you like write a chapter and send it back to her and she writes a chapter or, or how do you, how do you work on, how do you co-author together a series of books? So I kind of had this idea forever and I couldn't ever, I never found the right person. I couldn't quite get it there myself and I'm just I'm not that experienced of a writer at the book level and I kept running into roadblocks where I was like I don't know where to go when I met Rennie Dybal it was just like it was like meeting Emily like we really hit it off 
right from the start. And she was like, I've been thinking about this too. I have this, you know, I have this vision too. And she's written a lot of books. She's been a celebrity ghostwriter for most of her career. She worked at People for 15 years. Her list of, um, of like full length books is unbelievable. She's so accomplished. And so she has a lot of experience, like guiding people too, of like, this is how much we need to get to here. And this is what comes next. And having that structure, she had visions of how the characters looked and were. And to me, my values were the most important thing Mm -hmm. to intertwine throughout and, and really making that. And we share the same values. So like sitting down and having all those discussions, like after those discussions were done, it was easy because we agreed on everything. And then it was just a matter of putting everything together and, keeping everything moving. And she is the most disciplined. I'm very much like I only write when I'm inspired. That's the difference to me between a professional and an amateur. I'm an amateur writer because I can only write when I'm inspired. She can be like, I'm writing between 1 and 2 p.m. today and sits down and turns everything off and writes between 1 and 2 p.m. We didn't come up with a series title for a long time and we kind of just tossed around everything and nothing fit. And, um, and we had like hundreds of names and we would like call each other and be like, oh, what about this one and this one and go back and forth. And then Show Strides just came in, in that list and it just clicked. Yeah, it's a perfect title. And, and so, so this, is a, this is incredible. So you're working with a celebrity ghostwriter who also worked for People Magazine. And what I really love about all the stories that you shared with us so far is you're very much into partnership. And partnership is so important, no matter if, if you're author, not co-authoring, you're authoring your own book, you still have partners all around you that help with the success of your book. So partnership is very important in any undertaking, but this is a unique kind of partnership, which I love. So given her background, which route did you to choose? Did you go the independent publishing route or did you work with a traditional publisher? How did you make that decision? I had shopped over the years. I'd kind of been noodling on this idea for like maybe seven or eight years. Um, And I talked to a lot of publishers and stuff. And the line I got from a lot of publishers were horse books don't sell. Um, And that was really frustrating to me because in the process of all of this, I went to my local, I live in like the middle of nowhere in a very rural place. And I went to my local library and without any pretext, I just said, what's the most checked out book in the library? just out of curiosity, like I love to ask people questions like this. Mm -hmm. And the librarian was like, well, you'll laugh. And I was like, I promise I won't. And and he said, it's the original Saddle Club book from 1989. And he had no idea who I was. And I was like, yeah, don't so, tell me horse books are too niche. I don't believe it either. There are so many horse lovers. That's why I started this show to like really get the word out that, that we're out here and we're doing this and people want these. So I'm sorry, continue. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. So the most checked out book at your local library was the original Saddle Club book. That's amazing. And he was like, he's like, we've like rebound the, like we put like recovered it, rebound it. (laughs) And he's like, normally we would throw a book away that was like, this is thrashed, but people keep checking it out. So like, I really started thinking about like really early in the process, I was like, okay, I still, I love reading children's books um, because I just think adult books are not what I want to read in my spare time. Uh, like they're just too much. I just, I'm like, I can't, I have my own life. Like I like <laughs> that the keep children's it simple. Keep, yeah, it keep it simple. I like that the themes, I like that it's clear what's going on. Um, I usually fall asleep when I'm reading. So like it, it works out for me. And so I read hundreds of children's books. That was also part of the reason. Um, that I was like doing research on this forever because everyone would be like, what are you reading? And I'd be like, I'm researching my children's book series instead of me being like, no, I'm just reading children's books. (laughs) I'm like at the beach reading a book for a child and people are like, what are you doing? 
I don't know. Like, reading, reading horse children, children's book about horses. I think we, we all do that still yes. because we love horses, you know? So it's like, and it's, it is, it's a little bit more simple. It's, you know, it's like, especially if you're doing research for a book though, that's the absolutely right thing to do. Like research yeah. what's out there and they're fun because they have horses in them. So why not? <laughs> and you know, and I really walked away with this thing of like, think about how traditional publishers work. They're all about getting that initial boom, mm-hmm. you know? And I was like, that's, that's not how a children's book works. Like mm-hmm. they're new nine-year-olds every year. We need to be marketing to the new nine-year-olds every year. Like this is a 30-year project. This isn't a boom. This isn't a wake up one day and like, you know, get pre-orders and then have a party. And then I was like, no, no, no. Like we need to remarket this every year to the new kids that are coming up to this age level. Mm-hmm. And so when I started having like my own business vision on this, I couldn't work with anybody else to publish it. I knew we needed to have our own publishing thing in-house. So we got that all started and we got all the infrastructure set up. So the Plaid Horse published it, which is sort of independent publishing, somewhat, you know, hybrid, I guess you would call it. So it was very much less formal than what Rennie was used to doing with all of her big publishers. You know, really explaining to her that like my goal is not that like we wake up and like everyone in the world reads it this year. Like my goal is that we keep it available so that we get horse lovers reading it this year and next year. And like I like I know so many parents who they want to read their kids' books that they read when they were a kid. And like a lot of this stuff is out of print or it's hard to find. And and I really wanted this to be a book that every year new people learn it, enjoy it, share it with their friends, and that this is a really long-term business model and this is really good content. There are like whole riding lessons in there where they talk about what they do in the whole lesson. Like you're learning how the sport works. You're learning a little bit on how to ride. You're learning so many of these aspects and new people need to come in every year and learn this. And my husband's a chemistry professor. It's chemistry is so structured. So every year, first years basically take intro to um, intro chem, general chemistry, second years take organic chemistry, you know, third years take analytical instrumental chemistry, you know, fourth years take physical chemistry, you know, and there's some variations, but it's very structured. It's very hierarchical. And like people come into our sport and we're just like, ah, learn things, you know? (laughs) And then like, then we learn all this stuff. And then you're like, why don't you know all this stuff that I know? And then they're like, well, I just joined this sport like a year ago how am I supposed to know that? And we don't like walk people through the stages at all. Saw the book as a way of like walking people through the stages better, being like, here, this is a good place to start, you know? And then we all have the same baseline here and then we can all at least have a conversation at this level. If I could force people to read textbooks, absolutely I would. (laughs) (laughs) If I could, if I could make the sport learn in a, in a level that made sense to people, because I think people get so lost and we just don't help them as a sport. So yeah, it's, it certainly can be overwhelming, especially for a newbie with parents that don't know anything either. And I think what you're doing is so smart. A, looking at it as a long, a long tail, long-term growth strategy around the books, but also as the tiered approach to educating young people about the sport. And I love what you said is that, you know, it, it's hard to find some of these older horse books that are out of print now. So we do need fresh stories out there in the world for the new youth that are coming up. Because I think something that's happening in the horse industry is a lot of young people aren't getting 
involved with horses because they're on their phones, they're in the computer, they're in the cyber world. And, you know, if there's not the material for them to read to get interested in horses, then where's the future generation of the equestrian industry if we're not educating young people about the power of being with horses? So your books are a contribution to growing the industry from that young age. So you're, what you're doing has makes a lot of sense in a lot of different ways. So thank you for writing this book series. <laughs> Keep going. Don't stop. <laughs> and we put them on Audible for the same reason, because I mm. didn't see many books on Audible. I didn't see many children's books in general on Audible. There weren't many horse books in general on Audible. And, you know, some kids don't want to read for whatever reason. And I think a lot of kids that relate to horses really well a lot of them do have you know learning disabilities or reasons that they don't want to read and print all the time so that was really important to me that was a smart move too I do I do believe there's a huge future for our books in audio because people are now preferring to listen you know they've got those little Alexas all around their house and you know they'll shout out you know Alexa read first chapter of show strides book one while I'm cooking dinner. So my kids listen to them and they're not watching TV or, you know, something like that. So it's like, that's part of technology shifting the way that we consume content. So that was a very smart, a smart move. You know, that being said, what other ways are you reaching your readers with these, with these books? Are, are, are you doing anything specific to, to get, because what's a little different is what's the age group or age demographic for your books? Do you think? Um, middle grade, so kind of that like 8, 9 to 12, 13. But okay. we have a lot of adults like us who just of love course, of, of course. course. Because we, we read these books too. Uh, but, you, you know, you have a little bit of a, a, like sort of a stumbling block because you have to get to the children often through the, the parents because the parents mm-hmm. are the ones that make the decision to buy these books for their children. So are you, do you do school readings? Are you approaching libraries? Like how are you getting getting the word out about these books to your readers? We've done a little bit of everything. Um, We have not done as much marketing as I want to do or I will do, but that was part of the like launch plan too. I had a lot of other things going on and and Rennie and I kind of sat down and talked about it and I said, this can have a proper launch in like probably two years or we can let it kind of grow a little bit from its own merit and then do more of a proper launch. And by not having this like obsession that the book industry has with the launch date and all this stuff by having a long-term business model, we've taken a ton of the stress off of ourselves. Mm. You know, I do readings. She does readings. Also we've sold at horse shows. I meet with a lot of fans, but a lot of it has grown from word of mouth too. We've published excerpts in the magazine and and use a lot of the plaid horse platforms, but we haven't, you know, uh, to me, we're going to be market, you know, part of this being successful is marketing it for the next 30 years. And mm-hmm. so we're getting a lot of uh, people who have an emotional connection to it right now. And, and we need to do a lot more. And, you know, obviously, <laughs> current times, a little suck. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, for sure. But, but um, what, what you said is kind of smart, though. Like, you know, if you, if you kind of let it grow organically and do what you're doing, right, but then say you hit the 10 books in the series mark and then you do like a massive launch to a broader audience then there's content for them to consume like crazy and that that's actually you know that's a lot of that's some, that is a strategy that some authors use is they write all the books they don't really do a whole lot of talking they get all the books out there and then when they've got the series complete or well on its way then they do this massive push and then people just binge you know it's like releasing a whole season on Netflix so people can just watch all 10 episodes at once, you know? So, so you've got that in your corner, which is exciting. 
So you mentioned the plaid horse a couple times. Yeah. Let's let's jump into that. You you are the you are also the publisher of the plaid horse magazine, which then sort of bleeds out into a lot of other things that you're doing. So let's start there. Let's talk about uh, the publication, the topics you cover, and what readers can learn from your magazine. Let's talk about the magazine. So I bought the plaid horse in 2014. It was established in 2003, and it was the first place that people were published. Um, you know, it was given out free at horse shows and it was very accessible and people just always responded positively to it. I got my PhD in chemistry from Berkeley. I finished first in my class. Um, Whoa, and that's awesome. <laughs> never taken a journalism class in my life. And through chemistry, I'd gotten really into like marketing and I had started writing blog posts and I started using social media more and chemistry very much has this sense of like my chemistry will speak for itself. My science will speak for itself. I don't need to put a suit on. I don't need to get dressed. My science will speak for itself. And when I started playing with that stuff, I really, really realized that like you need a good basis for science, but like I basically learned what marketing was, you know, like, so when you have a good product underneath and then you combine that with good marketing, like the sky's the limit, you can just accomplish anything. And I got pretty burned out of chemistry. I burned myself out twice. I burned myself out with the horse thing as a teenager. And then I burned myself out and made a lot of the same mistakes in a different arena. Then I had to confront that it was me and not the arena. <laughs> so <laughs> I, uh, I was confronting the fact that I needed to, do things that I liked the process more and I liked um, do them at a sustainable level and um, that it's not about the end goal. And I think for me, riding for the first time was like really about the end goal. I wanted to win at the big competitions. I wanted to, I didn't want to wake up and ride every morning for the sake of riding. I had gotten obsessed with all these other things and chemistry got to be the same way. I got obsessed with papers and accolades and then those things would come and they would be kind of meaningless, you know, because they don't feel as good as that kind of work that they take. So if you don't appreciate the process, you're just kind of, you're just kind of lost. So I was coming to terms with all that. And um, it was right when Instagram and Facebook were really getting going. And I just, I saw, I started playing with that stuff. And then, so I was kind of looking around. And then when I got my PhD, my treat to myself was that, I went to the thermal circuit for the whole circuit and I had nothing to do. Like literally I had never been to a winter circuit for the whole circuit. And I just went and like, I hadn't really lived on the West coast much at that point. So I knew like not a soul and I had nothing to do. And I just, I was like, I'm just going to take a break. Okay. But like <laughs> four days and I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to slow what? down after going full speed for so long. Right. Yeah. And so one of the publications made a Facebook post of like, Oh, we're looking for someone to cover the Grand Prix on Sunday. So I'd never written like an article in my life, but I was like, I can do that. It was like completely a light bulb moment for me because my whole life I'd wanted to learn more about this sport and everyone just thought I was annoying, you know, or they thought I was questioning them. Like, I'd be like, how does this work? And they'd be like, stop questioning me. And I'd be like, Oh, like, I'm not, I'm not questioning you. I just want to know how it works. And I think a lot of times, a lot of professionals are really bad about that. And I think they're trying to get better, but like back in those times, a lot of them were really bad about that. You know, it's at my way, you know, and it's like, I want to do it your way. I just want to know why they, how, how did you develop your way? Why are you doing it your way? I was so annoying. Like, and then after the Grand Prix, 
like all the Grand Prix riders were like so excited to tell me how they rode the course and why they rode it that way and how their horse acted and like people that would never talk to me. And I was like, oh my God, like I can bring education to the people who want it so desperately. Like we can make this educational and all of this stuff was just getting started. You know, the live stuff, oh, you could do a live course walk with someone. Like no one was even touching these things. Mm-hmm. And I went around to everyone a little bit and I was like, had all these ideas and I was ready to go and it was oh like little girl you don't know how marketing works you don't know how branding works like social media is just a fad like you don't understand and I was like I'm pretty sure I'm right like I just I I was pretty sure that I knew what I was doing that I my ideas were good my ideas that other people were telling me were bad were good you know, just like the book thing as a long-term business model and the, you know, and the ponies really taught me about a long-term business model. And, you know, I, I understood that I wasn't, I understood what it really took to educate, you know, I mm-hmm. like, and, and all my schooling, like it's not, it's not waking up tomorrow and having there be results. Like there's no educational system that like you have results quickly. And I knew if I was going to put all of that in, I had to be in control and it had to be mine. I knew I looked like I was 12 still because people were still asking me if I showed them the ponies. <laughs> and I was like, no, I have a PhD. <laughs> I mean, to this day, so many people ask me if I'm an intern or who actually owns a flat horse, um, which is. Yeah, um, I, would, I would say when I, when I galloped around your website, I was like, how old is she? I mean, you, you, are, you have this youthful appearance about yourself and that's a good thing, you know, and I it just. I think you're offering such incredible advice for listeners here is that there is no such thing as instant success. Like any author you see that has a book that is selling a million copies and is hitting a best-selling list has probably written 15 flops, has been learning and working on their career since they could probably even remember. You know, there are there's no such thing as instant success. It's educating yourself. It's committing to a dream and a passion. It's following your gut and being in it for the long term and building your own success and, and, and not listening to anybody else telling you you can't live your dreams. And I'm, I keep hearing that theme over and over again as you're speaking. And you're doing it. I mean, and, but you're sharing the fact that there no business pops up and is instantly successful. There are years and years and years of development in the background. Uh, so you know, just keep working at things, which is what you're doing, you know, so you bought the plaid horse magazine, which, yep. which is, is that a regional magazine for hundred jumpers or is that a nationwide magazine for hundred jumpers? Uh, I'm just curious where, where the distribution started for that. It was pretty regional. It used to be based in New Jersey. And so it was a lot concentrated around there. And then now it's the largest horse show magazine in North America. Okay. For, um, the hunter circle? horse show. Yep. Hunters okay. and jumpers. Yep. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Yep. I'm coming from the quarter horse world. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's, it's a, it's yep. a discipline themed magazine. Okay. Yep. It's a discipline theme. So it's the largest of its discipline theme in there, in that discipline. Got it. I bought it. I put a down payment on with pony money and um, the previous owner financed it. So I had monthly payments for two years and that's how I paid for it. So that's um, amazing. So you cut your teeth in the journalism industry by writing articles on the Grand Prix when you were taking a break from earning your PhD and then you picked up an established brand magazine in your discipline of choice and took on the role of publisher. That is incredible with a vision. You had a vision in mind. 
So talk to us about the the growth of the magazine, what you're what you're doing with it now. I, I've I heard you mention a couple things about uh, social media strategies and educational opportunities inside the magazine. Like where are you now with the Platforms publication? So I would say that the hardest thing for me has been employing other people. I have my own business because I don't want anyone to tell me what to do, but I also don't really want to tell anyone else what to do. <laughs> I learned. Um, and so that's been really big. And, and we just put out an issue. The May June issue is all uh, an issue based around shame and shame in the equestrian industry. Um, and it was so important to me because not only riding and I mean, I feel like we shame other people in this industry for having money, for not having money, for showing all the time, for not showing enough, for having a real job, for not having a real job. I mean, for being too fat and too thin and too, you know, drinking too little and drinking too much. Like we just shame everyone for everything. And it's so screwed up when you really think about it. And I felt a lot of shame in the early years, especially being a boss. Like I, I didn't really have the, you know, I... It took me a long time to feel like I belonged um, and that I truly earned what I had and that like having to fire other people is awful and having to talk to someone about their performance is awful. And like, you know, I didn't handle all of this stuff well for a long time. And, you know, it's it just I really wanted to make this like happy place where everyone was treated well and everyone behaved well. And it's just like corporate structure exists for a reason, mm. you know, corporations exist how they are for a reason. And then the other thing is because I did basically all the jobs in the beginning myself and then hired people as we, like, as we grew enough, because everyone was hired out of profits at the company, you know, every growth step was out of money that the company made. So I, every job went from me doing it to someone else doing it, which is really hard. Mm because no one does it like you do it to be it's hard to find good people especially in the you know it's so much easier now that we're established and people want to work for us and good people come to us but that all those stages in the beginning was really hard because of that structure I built like instead of building like a hierarchy I built like a wheel where I was the center of the wheel and everyone relied on me all the time because no one else knew how to do their job except me mm. and I started seeing the signs of some of the same burnout not an easy job and I totally feel you yeah, and I think you you mentioned something there where, and I think this happens to a lot of people with an entrepreneurial mindset. You want everything done the way you visualize it, and then you create it so everyone has to rely on you rather than the hierarchy where it's, you know, it comes up to me after it goes through these people who can handle it, who I trust, who can handle it. Uh, a great book on this, on, on the power of delegation, which it took me a long time to realize I couldn't do everything. It's called Who Moved My Cheese? You might really <laughs> like this okay. if you haven't heard of it. I'll send you the link after the show. But I hear what you're saying. So you were you were getting close to this experience of burnout again once you became once you bought Plaid Horse Magazine. How did you work that out? A lot of it's been working on myself, and I've been you know spending a lot of time now working through that. And um, a lot of it was really taking on this concept of shame um, mm -hmm. and taking on the the shame I felt from a child in the sport, the shame I felt from, um, you know, I don't get to ride all the time. And so then when I do ride, I'm weak and I struggle. And I always want to put myself out there. But, you know, I get slayed by putting myself out there all the time, you know, for every partnership that works, you know, how many have I had, you know, dozens, hundreds that have, you know, not worked. And, 
and really being a perfectionist. I think like a big part of burnout is perfectionism. And like, I was cleaning my house like a year ago and I found a letter from um, my PG advisor. And I remember, I remember exactly how I felt when I read it and I was enraged and it was just, I, it felt like all the criticism in the world. And I was like, and I found it in this box and I read it with like a completely clear Zen mind. And I was like, oh my God, this letter literally says, you're great. You made this one mistake like two months ago, but you're great. And I'm like, I, and I remember all the emotions of reading it at the time. And, and that perfectionism thing, like it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't help. It needs to be confronted. The shame thing needs to be confronted. Um, you know, and I think part of that is like when you do everything on the ground floor of the magazine yourself, you know, I was editing every Facebook comment. So I would read every Facebook comment. I was editing every Instagram, you know, post. And so I would read every Instagram post. And, you know, Brene Brown has this like big concept about like, if they're not in the, if they're in the cheap seats, their opinion doesn't count. If they're not out in the ring with you, if they're not getting sweaty and getting dirty, like their opinion doesn't matter. And like, but to some of that, like, for that to work, you almost have to have the self-confidence that you have achieved more than other people. Mm. And I really want everyone to be, I really want to welcome everyone so much that it's, I almost had to like come to terms in myself that I believe in a quality of opportunity, but I don't believe in a quality of outcome. Mm. And I want everyone on the planet to have the same opportunities that I've had. And I'm really committed to that in so many different arenas of my life. But the equality of outcome is in your hands. And, and like, even saying that is still hard for me. Like, I don't, I don't want, I want to have a hundred percent success rate. I want every employee to have a great time. I want everyone to be successful. I want to fix every horse that's broken. Like I, you know, and, and really just being like, okay, they, I can't want it for them more than they want it for themselves. So it was like so many of these little things tied in to really just this is my business. I built this. Other people are welcome to have opinions on it. I cherish their work so much. I appreciate what they've done, but you know, at some level they're paid for their time. They're not taking the risk that I'm taking and it's my company. It's my decision. And that's even hard for me to say right now. I'm like, <laughs> that's <laughs> but, really you know, powerful. There. That's really, really powerful though. I mean, I, what I love about your journey is that this is, this is also affording you the opportunity to develop and grow yourself and your skills and look at some of the things that have been impacting you in your past. And then you're authentically talking about that experience and sharing it with people like on this show here, but in the magazine and you're, you're doing the work and you said something really special. You cannot be accountable for what other people are doing, you know what I mean, or how they're thinking. You can't force anyone to do anything. You can expect that they do what you're paying them to do. And if they don't, they have to be held accountable for the fact that they're not doing what they signed on with you to do. But you can't, you're not responsible for them not doing their job well. That's their responsibility. So, and Brene Brown is amazing. I think the quote you shared is from Darren Greatly, uh, her book, which is really fabulous. And then, you know, so you, you so then you, again, expanded on the Plaid Horse, and you are also the host of Plaid Cast, which is an equestrian podcast with, you know, almost 200 episodes. Tell us about the show. Do you cover some of the same topics that you cover in the magazine? Like, 
what do you do? What are you doing with the podcast? I just, I think podcasting is such a great forum to learn and to think and, you know, while you're doing other things and we're all driving and commuting and, um, you know, doing laundry and, and so many things that like reading doesn't make sense for. And so to me, it's, it was really just an extension of the education. So we started it four years ago um, with Horse Radio Network. Now we're the largest hunter jumper podcast and they're, they're number out there now. And we try to have everyone on, you know, we have top riders and trainers, but also vendors and vets and different aspects of the industry and really ask them, you know, how their day is shaped and the stuff that like, cause I, I just, especially growing up, I didn't think about the jobs that weren't in front of me. Like I never thought about publisher as a job. Like the Chronicle came to my house every week and it never occurred to me mm-hmm. that someone like stood out in the rain and took every one of those pictures. Like I just never thought about it. You know, you think about being a vendor, you think about all of these different aspects of the horse show and being a course designer, um, the people working in the office, like everyone is like has their own career and their own interests and their own pressures and all that, you know, is dealing with their own stuff. And like, we don't, always think about everything that goes into something. And so I really wanted to talk about that. And I really, you know, it's hit or miss, but I really hope people will be candid about stuff being hard and what they, how much work they put in to get to where they are and, you know, and how much risk they took. And this industry is just hard. It, you know, there are no (laughs) two ways about it. There's no job in this industry that is easy. And I say that to the young people. I'm like, there's no job that you can get for you to be able to do this industry how you want to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, you also, gosh, you wear so many hats. Like I, I I feel like we could talk for, for six hours here, but you also, like you've mentioned a couple of times, you also have a PhD, which is incredible. And you are also an occasional professor at St. Lawrence University teaching business science, equestrians, equestrian classes and courses on entrepreneurship. So talk to us about how you got involved in teaching and how you balance doing all of these things because you're doing a lot and running a lot of different businesses that kind of feed each other, but still it's a, it's a lot. So part of the burnout, uh, like getting close to burning out a couple of years ago was, um, you know, one of the changes I decided to make was that I hadn't taught in a long time. And my husband's a professor at St. Lawrence. I decided that getting back in the classroom and having some structure, because like the horses are amazing and that like your schedule is completely nebulously horse, but your schedule is also completely nebulously horse. And so one of the things I decided to shake up myself was to teach for a semester and every Tuesday and Thursday, having to be home and not at a horse show and having to show up and teach. And some of that was even just like being able to step away. Like, you know, when you are the, when you've made a wheel and you are the only point where everyone needs, even stepping away for an hour is so hard and people freak out and that kind of stuff. So I was like, this is going to force me to be home, to have a schedule and to step away. Like, but I'm not getting it done on my own accord. So that was the fall of 2018. And I had the most incredible class. I taught a first year class. Every student was an athlete in the class, all in different sports. And they all had all these experiences. And it was such a time in my life. I started working out with Daniel Stewart and his athlete training camps that summer. And I never really considered myself an athlete. Like I, uh, you know, riding wasn't really a sport when I was growing up. And like, I had no desire to like fight with people and make it a sport. I was like, okay, great. Like I'm riding. That's like, I don't need to define it. 
And so like, I know a lot of people had this like, oh, riding's a sport and had this argument, but I never like, I just like, I was in my own world. I was just a rider and that was it. And so that kind of with, between working with Daniel and then starting getting started with this class, it was like this, I really realized for the first time that like in my life that I'm an athlete, which is like such a ridiculous thing to say, but I'd never really just kind of put too fine a point on it. And once I realized that I was an athlete and then we had all these athletes in class, like all of this data and all of this research on being an athlete in other sports and suddenly applies to me. And it's all stuff that I had like never really read, never really consumed. You know, I thought about like getting fitter, but I wasn't like, oh my God, every single athlete cross trains for their sport. You know, just putting it in simple terms like that. Every athlete eats to fuel their sport, every athlete. And so once like I had this like body of research from decades (laughs) from other sports, I was like really comforted in an odd way. So the class was on entrepreneurship and because everyone was so sporty, we took like a lot of sporty detours on, you know, how different athletes get paid and career times and endorsement deals. And, you know, we had the most fun in that class. Um, It was such a great group. We had really dynamic discussions. I really looked forward to it all the time. And it really changed my perspective. And another thing is, you know, in the equestrian world, like I talked to like 99% women Mm -hmm. and that's great. And I love supporting women and stuff, but this class was predominantly male. And like, it was such a different energy and to change things up and in my life. And that's what I was looking for. You know, I was looking to something to shake up where I was kind of stuck in and, and that attitude of like, how would a man handle this situation? What would come naturally to a male boss that is not coming naturally to me and really thinking about things in in different contexts and how do I make this successful? Um, So that class totally kind of shook it up for me. And, and I was really excited about it last year. The travel did get hard. It got hard because I live in the middle of nowhere. So (laughs) to actually make it home every single week and be present for all those classes with my horse show schedule, that was probably the hardest part of all of it. And so last year I co-taught a class with my husband. It was called Scientific Discovery so that we could trade off teaching lectures so that, you know, I would teach full lectures, you know, when I was home and then, you know, he would teach, we scheduled it out a little bit more. From there, getting kind of more back into the academic groove. And the thing we talked about with general chemistry being so structured, there are just so many things I want to teach every person at the horse show. I want to teach them how to save for retirement. I want to teach them how to handle their money. Like I see so many people that so much huge quantities of money passes through them and then they have nothing left when they get old. They have nothing left at retirement. They don't understand kind of the metagame of how the horse world works, how you can buy more horse for less money, how you can, you know, Again, with with the ponies, it's like the pony that wins the most is not the pony that's saleable or leasable. The pony that's the most rideable is the one that's saleable or leasable, and it might not ever win. And so really just seeing businesses for what they are, the industry for what it is, the bottom line, I just, I really wanted to share that. And that's where the equestrian classes were born. They were planned to be online before the pandemic, which in hindsight, my crystal ball is pretty tuned. (laughs) We don't have a lot of formal education always in in our industry. And I I expressed to St. Lawrence how important this was to me to make it college credit, make it formal education, make it count, make it real, Mm. and have it be practical and difficult and about our industry. And they supported me 100%. That's amazing. So let me ask you this. Are there any thoughts about expanding uh, those courses outside of, of 
the college. So, because this sounds like something we all need. I mean, this could be a podcast, this could be a book, mm-hmm. this could be online classes that you offer through, you know, your, your website. I mean, I mean, are you thinking about expanding these course offerings or are they exclusive to the, to the school? We're still figuring out what the right direction is for everything. St. Lawrence had never done this before, but they made open enrollment for these classes. So you don't have to be a student. Anyone can take them. Oh, cool. Um, so that was really important to me. And they were, you know, excited to do that. They saw the value in it. We had a lot of parents whose kids started riding, like kind of in the same boat as my parents. <laughs> they didn't know anything about it and they want to learn about their kids' sport. We had professional trainers. We had people of all ages. We had students as young as um, 13 taking wow. them. It was really an amazing first year and, and we have a lot of ideas. And I kept saying like, the interest is here, the interest is here. And the college was like, oh, sure. you know. <laughs> and now they're like, oh, the interest is here. What are we going to do next? And I'm like, yep. <laughs> I know. See that your gut always, your gut is always right. And I love that you keep pushing and you're like, I'm not going to stop because I see the value. And, and that is what makes a solid entrepreneur of any sort or or a leader or an educator any of the things that you are you're not letting people tell you no when you when you see an opportunity you're stepping into it and that is so so important so and thank you for everything that you're doing i have a question what advice and i'm sure you have a ton but what advice would you give someone who's interested in stepping into the entrepreneur arena for the very first time what what would you say is probably a very important first step i think that it's just and writing and everything is like this it's a numbers game um the people who are successful writers you would not believe how much they write um the people who have successful businesses you would not believe how many businesses they try and how many things fail and how much it really is a number you know I get up every day and do as many things as I can do. And like most of them fail. Most of them are wrong. You know, I only publish about the things that work on social media, but it's like, it doesn't, if you're not failing a lot, you're not pushing yourself close enough to the limit and someone else is and will beat you. And it doesn't mean that you're bad. It doesn't mean that you're not smart. You know, you can have everything right and the timing be a year off. Pitching online classes <laughs> a year ago was a lot harder <laughs> to old <laughs> academics who were like, oh, I don't know, is online really <laughs> real? And now they're like, oh, yeah, an online class sounds great. <laughs> and that doesn't, the idea did not change at all. You know, it was the timing. And it's, it, you know, and a lot of times timing is other people's problem. But knowing that you're going to get rejected a lot, knowing that a lot of ideas won't come to terms and that doesn't make you bad it doesn't make you wrong but if you keep doing the right things for the right reasons generally the right outcome will come at some point Mm, that is perfect and I love how you said it doesn't make you bad if you fail because at least you're in the game you're on the court you're in the arena you are pursuing your passion and you are trying and you know failure is only is just piece of the puzzle. You know, you have to you have to fail to figure out what works and what doesn't in order to have a business succeed. So that is everybody take note of what Piper just said. That's very important advice. So you have shared so much information with us uh, and, and you have talked about a lot of projects that you have in the works. But I was wondering, you know, what are you curious about right now? What's like on your radar of somewhere that you really want to start heading towards? as you develop your, uh, your, your business and your brands? So 
we just did this big shame unit. And I think the next thing that I'm really like thinking a lot more about is kind of that like, like I think our sport uniquely in a lot of ways has this like hobbyist versus professional. Uh, I talked to Rennie about this a lot. And actually like Emily with the pony sales too, is that like, you know, Rennie is just such a true professional at her craft, you know, and like, I I don't, I think we're really bad at trusting experts, um, trusting their expertise, who is an expert on what. And I, you know, I really want to explore like what makes us trust certain people, what makes us not trust certain people, why we have this aversion to expertise, especially in the horse industry. In the hunter jumper side, we have a lot of issues with commissions and we have people who get really touchy about commissions. And, and I'm like, the trainer is working, like if you have a correctly structured relationship with your trainer and deal, your trainer is working so hard for that commission. Absolutely. Like, but the fact that we're like, oh my God, they're just putting that money in their pocket. They're using their expertise that they developed for the last 30 years. They're not just putting that money in their pocket. And like, maybe that's like, maybe they didn't explain that to you well enough, or you don't Mm -hmm. understand what's going on, Mm -hmm. or they didn't educate you enough. But like, that kind of whole side of things. I'm a really big believer in every relationship is a matter of managing expectations. Like people can be okay with anything as long as it's what both sides expected. And like we, you know, you think about your friendships like that. Like if you expect to have dinner with someone once a week and you have dinner with them once a week, everybody's happy. You know, if you expect to have dinner with someone every night and they only have dinner with you once a week, like you hate each other, you know, kind of managing all of that kind of side of like hobby versus professional versus amateur. And, you know, and it's, it it is interesting to me that like so many people come to me for like horse advice or like horse care or horse training. And I'm like, that's not, I am not a professional at that, you know, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. ask someone who's a real expert, like, but they trust me so they want to ask me stuff about everything. And I just find that concept to be so interesting. Like just because you trust someone, you trust their opinion on everything. Like, so I, I really want to, I don't know how I'm going to explore that, but I'm really interested in, I'm really curious about how one could tackle that subject in publication and, and really get the ball rolling. The other thing is I love talking about money. People in our industry are so uncomfortable. I'm always like making posts like today. I made a post in our amateur group of like, what do you pay for training board? What does it include? You know, I think the more we get people talking about what the sport actually costs, what it entails, again, with the shame, like take the shame out of that and say, yep, we're all paying a lot for our horses. It's a ridiculous amount of money, but let's talk about what it actually includes, what it should include, what we, mm. what our expectations are for the sport. So the more we can get people to kind of be realistic and put themselves out there and talk about what's actually going on, I think the more, the better the sport gets. Oh, you are a blessing to the, our business and to the world. I mean, the, the topics that you want to, that you have discussed shame and, and all the other topics, but the topics you're interested in pursuing, I think are really important. And in the book, the works you're doing inside of the books that you're writing are really important. So, and, and thank you for sharing your values and talking about money and talking about all these things, because that's how things change is when people are, are talking about them and dissecting them and looking at them and understanding them and creating community around them. And you are doing that. And uh, I can't wait to see where you go with the hobbyist versus professional. And that actually happens in the author community too. Uh, even when you file your taxes, they look at you, is this really a business or is it just a hobby? And they can penalize you for that. So 
you know, so these passionate things that we're involved in from creativity to riding horses often get penalized as, as a hobby when in fact, these are, there are professionals and experts and businesses that are working inside of them. So to break up that myth, I think would be really powerful. So thank you for taking a look at that. And, and Piper, I, Honestly, I feel like I could talk to you for seven more days about all the wonderful things that you're up to and all your views on different topics. But for now, will you share with listeners where they can find you, your books, your magazine, your podcast, and all the other things that you're up to? Maybe Lisa Pony? <laughs> Theplaidhorse.com is where you can find kind of the basis for everything. Our podcast is called The Plaidcast. It's on anywhere you listen to podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, or theplaidhorse.com slash listen. Ghost Rides are on Amazon, the first three books, in print, Kindle, and Audible. So however you like to read, uh, we try to be there for everyone. Thank you again for the gift of your time. I so appreciate everything that you shared with us today, and I appreciate everything you're doing to make a difference in horses, in people, in the world. I really appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and riding, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes, and make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle. <laughs>